This morning's reading is taken from the first book of Samuel, from chapters 4, 5, and 7. We're starting with chapter 4, verses, verse 1b, which is on page 274. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Arphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, The Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And then chapter 5, verses 1 to 8. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod Step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them 
and afflicted them with tumors. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And chapter 6 tells us how the ark was eventually returned to Israel. And chapter 7, 2 to 9. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim. And all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths, and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jill, for um, reading such a long um, section. That's fantastic and beautifully read. The, um, the great American theologian, Al Pacino, um, said, I asked God for a bike, but I know God doesn't work that way, so I stole the bike and I asked for forgiveness. <laughs> I wonder if that sentiment is us. Do we presume on God? Do we take him for granted? God our Father, we come before you now and thank you for your word and we pray that you'll speak to us through it, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Two things to remember. First, the book of Judges that comes before uh, 1 Samuel um, ends with these words. In those days there was no king and everyone did as he saw fit. It was a free-for-all, okay? First thing to remember. Second thing to remember, two Sundays ago, we saw in 1 Samuel 3, 1, that the word of the Lord was rare 
there were not many visions. Two things everyone does as they please, and the word of God was rare. And yet, into this enters Samuel, a young man, and the word of the Lord comes to the people through him. What, it, what excitement there must have been. And yet, what was that word? It was a, it was a shocking word. It was an unsettling word. It was a, a word that not many wanted to hear. Chapter 3, verse 11 said, A word that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. Because it was a word of judgment. Eli was the, the leader. He was the, the priest in charge of the spiritual life of the people. God's going to judge him and his household because of their sin. Hophni and Phineas, his sons, were, were gluttons, stealing meat from the temple, defying God. Not only that, they were committing adultery with women who came to the temple to worship. Eli did nothing about this. Year after year, it was going on, and God says, I'm going to stop it. God will not let this mockery continue. Judgment is coming, and the whole nation knew it. The whole nation knew it, and the surrounding nations knew it. Verse 19 alludes to this. It says in chapter 3, The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan, which is in the north, to Bathsheba in the south, that's about 100 miles in distance, that Samuel was attested to as a prophet of the Lord. Everyone knew it. Everyone knew the word of the Lord through Samuel. God will not be mocked. He's coming in judgment. Your ears will tingle. Now we enter chapter 4. And we don't hear about Samuel until we get to chapter 7 later. But what we get in chapter 5 and 6 is the outworking of that judgment. So the judgment of God. Verse One of chapter 4 says, Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. And initially 4,000 of them die. Samuel's been given the word of God from Dan to Bathsheba. And at no point does anyone really make the link between the defeat and that word. Instead, verse 3, they ask, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today? Ah, they'll probably think, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hands of our enemies. Now, a bit of background, this ark of the Lord, what, it, what is that? Well, it was a, it was a box, not much bigger than, than that. It symbolized God's presence with his people. It was made for the Ten Commandments. Remember those given to Moses? It was covered in gold and it kept... It was kept in the most holy part of the tabernacle. That's the tent. It was the symbolic presence of God with his people, leading them through the wilderness to the promised land. And so instead of stepping back and making the connection between defeat and God's judgment and the word that came to Samuel, connecting the word of Samuel, instead they decide the problem was that they hadn't got the ark with them and so as long as they had the ark, they thought, ah, we'll, we'll win, we'll smash this. 
They were essentially manipulating God. That's what was going on for their own ends. They, they were presuming on God being with them. Presuming that if they got the symbolic presence of God with them, God would, would do his bit and smash the Philistines. They were treating God a bit like a good luck charm. To add insult to injury. Do you see who's actually carrying the ark? It's Bonnie and Clyde, isn't it? It's Burke and Hare, whatever duo you want to call them. Hophni and Phineas. Two men that the Bible characterized in chapter 2 as a wicked men who had no regard for the Lord. Now the Philistines get wind of what's going on. Um, and what's about to happen in verse 6. And of course they get afraid. Why are they afraid? Well, they're afraid because they know, they've heard the stories of the Lord's great victories. The victory against the Egyptians out through the, the wilderness. The Lord, how he rescued them. He, they'd heard about the stories of Jericho and Sion and Og and all those places that you hear about it in Joshua and Judges. They knew that the Lord could do, could, could do this. And yet... They both go into battle again. Verse 10, the Israelites were defeated. The slaughter was very great. 30,000, it says, and the ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons died. Give you some perspective on 30,000. On the first day of the Somme in World War I, 20,000 soldiers were killed. This This is massive, isn't it? This is an absolute national catastrophe. Make no mistake, everybody's ears would be tingling. News travels to Eli. He was crushed by it, he fell backwards and he hit his head and he died. Samuel's word said, if you keep defying God, the judgment will come. And judgment has now come. It's vividly, isn't it, seen in the story of Phineas's wife. We didn't have it read, but look at it later. Wife, uh, Phineas's wife goes into labor and gives birth to a son. Verse 21, she named the boy Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God. Ichabod meaning depa- the glory has departed. God's glory gone, 34,000 people dead, the leader and priest Eli dead, his two heirs dead, all gone, the glory of God symbolised by the Ark of the Covenant gone, departed, where is it? In the hands of their enemies. Absolutely devastating, catastrophe. To a people who had taken God for granted, who had presumed on God... And surely that's right for us to ask ourselves. Is do, do we do the same? Do we presume on God? Do we take him for granted? If you're a Christian here, it's a question, isn't it, to ask ourselves. Are we letting some sin go unchecked in our, our life? Do we presume he's there for you as a bit like a lucky charm? Do you treat him like the kind of proverbial vending machine? You know, you put, the, put the, these buttons in place and pull the handle and out comes the blessing. 
I've been asking that myself this week very much. Sometimes I think, are we trying to actually manipulate God? Bargain with him. I'll rub your back if you rub mine. The holy, incomparable Lord Almighty who is enthroned enthroned between the cherubim on high will not be mocked. And so he departs. The ark symbolizes his presence. Shockingly now goes where? Goes to Dagon's temple, chapter 5. Chapter 5, we see the power of God at work. What kind of God was Dagon? Dagon, some scholars think he was the grain god. Since the word for grain is very similar to Dagon. That would make him a kind of harvest um, time god. Uh, and you might think that has perhaps more relevance for people in Norfolk than it does for southeast um, in, uh, London. I suspect not many of you here worship a grain god. But of course, when we think about it, we can worship anything. The, the Philistines, like many nations in that, in that period, in that, around that area, worship the things around them. The, the material things of harvest, uh, of fertility, the sun, the moon, the stars, the rivers, the, the sea. Every element that was around them, that was made, um, and it was made into a god. So in a sense, what, what's happening is that you, you, you choose what element of the universe um, you want to worship. And so in that system, it wasn't so much about it wasn't so much about which God um, was true, but which God was the most functional to you, the most, in a sense, practical, the most real for you and your needs. If you were a farmer, then the grain God was the most practical and, and functional thing for you. People didn't sit around so much and ask, is this God real? No, it was more, does, does this God work for us? Does it work for us? It was a very pragmatic kind of spirituality. Let's pick up the story again in, in chapter 5. And I, th- I think it's in some ways it's quite comical. The first night, um, when the ark comes in, uh, the symbolic presence of God, the ark comes in. The first night, the statue of Dagon falls over before the ark. And you can imagine the priests of Dagon going, those pesky kids have been in again, haven't they? They've knocked it over. So they pick it up, and the next day, of course, the same thing happens. Um, but this time, the, the, ha- the head is gone, and um, the hands are, cut, are broken off. And, and you see, the head was understood as the place of wisdom, and the hands were the place of power. So... You can see what's happening. Dagon was utterly foolish, no wisdom, and pathetically impotent in comparison to the almighty Lord God of hosts. The people think first, don't they? They think, well, maybe it's just vandalism going on. But then there's all these terrible plagues that throughout Ashdod and the land. So the people send the ark off to Gath. But the same thing happens, a terrible plague So they then try and send it to Ekron. And the people of Ekron don't like this. 
and a riot kind of breaks out. You've, you've heard of everything that's happened. You don't want the ark coming, do you? And so it, they say in verse 10 of chapter 5, they have brought the ark of the Lord of God of Israel round to us to kill us and our people. And finally, the, the Philistines get together and say this can't just be coincidence. And so they test it out. And that's really what happens in chapter 6 that we didn't have read. Go and have a look at it later. Um, they, they stick the ark of God on a cart and they tie two cows to it. Um, two cows that have just calved, which is very important. They knew the instinct of cows would be just to, to return to their newborn young. But instead, those cows head right out of town, straight back to Israel, and they arrive at Beth Shemesh. And the people are all really excited. They start celebrating. They're thinking, oh, I'll have a little, I've never seen the ark before. I'll have a little peek in it. I've always fancied a peek. They open it up in verse 19. tells us that 70 of them were struck dead. What does this tell us about um, God? What does it tell us, you might be thinking? At least it tells us, doesn't it, that actually God, in some sense, is a a dangerous God. Don't mess with him. You might even be thinking, well, that's just what I expected, a a kind of capricious God who is unpredictable and, and not very nice. Well, apart from the capricious bit, I think we have to recognize that God is... A God who's not tame, and in many senses is dangerous. What does this mean mean for us? Today, people, in a similar way, rarely stop to think, is Christianity true? Is this God true? Is this the one true God? People rarely actually ask that anymore. They ask the same question, don't they, as the Philistines asked. They ask, does it work? It's ever so pragmatic. We're actually not that far from the Philistines in this sense. You know, if the Philistines had a problem with harvest, they went to the Dagon to fix it. And we do the same. We get all pragmatic about God. But when God knocked Dagon over twice, he wasn't just saying, I'm bigger and better than your God. He cut the hands and the heads off. He's saying, I am the only God, the only true God, the living God. And so what does that mean to us? I think that means to us, don't, we don't come to Christianity because it's exciting, although it is. Okay? Please don't come to Christianity because it will heal you, even though it, it can Please don't come to Christianity because it's relevant, even though I believe it's the most relevant thing in the entire world. Please don't come to Christianity because there is power even in it, even though it is the most powerful thing ever. Come to Christianity because it is true. That's the most important thing to start with. God doesn't say, I'm one God among many other gods in your life. No, I'm the only true God, the one true God who must be put first. Don't come to Christianity because it's functional or pragmatic. 
It helps me get through X, Y and Z. Because it's pragmatic. Because it's true. Well, why do I say that? Why? Well, because there will be times when it is not practical to be a Christian. There will be times when it is not healing. But it seems, in a sense, that at times that it seems to be wounding. Times when it doesn't seem relevant at all. Times when it's far from exciting and actually seems very dull and boring. What will keep you trusting in God in those times, when those hit? If you know the reason you believe is not because it is exciting, relevant, healing or powerful, but because it is true. That is it. If it is true, you should believe it is true. It has to be all those other things, is it? Does it not? It will be all those other things, but don't be pragmatic about it because there will be times when it doesn't feel like it, it doesn't look like it, it doesn't look like it's going to work out. Think about it. One day the ark of God goes out, thousands of people in the battle around it, and and it does nothing. It gets defeated. It looks totally impotent. A month later, it's laying waste to an entire nation without anyone's help. That means God is not predictable. He is not there to perform for you, to work things out for you, to fulfill your pragmatic needs. He's there to show you that he is in charge, that he is the Lord Almighty, the only God, and he will bring his purposes to pass. This is the way... You get military victories, the, the, the Israelites said. You take the ark out, you roll God out, and, ha- and he will zap them for you. And of course it didn't happen. Why? Because they finished up treating God like other nations were treating their gods. Treating them as if he was there for their pragmatic needs. This is the way you get things sorted out in your life. You roll out God who will sort it out for you. He will do it. We can do it. We can do this kind of thinking in our own church, can't we? We, we should try, yes, you know, we should have great programs. We should have great small groups. We should have structures and organizations. We have good music, which is wonderful. And try to have lots of stuff going on. But remember those things are not that really matters. What matters is him. And him alone, the power of God is never attached to any one visible thing, a method, an object, an ark. He comes in and he goes out again. Why? Because he's not tame, he's not predictable, you can't predict him. You can't just crank the handle with God and out comes the thing that you want. No, he's a holy God. A pure and just and powerful God. And he is mighty to save. But you can't just treat him like a thing. And you might be sitting there thinking, Eddie, how am I supposed to get to know this kind of God that you're talking about? How am I supposed to get to know a God like that? 
He seems completely other and alien to me. Well, praise the Lord. Provides, he provides the way. He provides someone to intercede. That's what you get, finally, in the mercy of God. Remember Samuel? Samuel chapter 7, verse 2. It was a long time, 20 years, 20 years in all. The ark remained at Kirith-Jerim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. They finally, it dawns on them what's going on. What God really wants, he wants them to seek him with all their heart. And that's what they do. Verse 3, Samuel says, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then rid yourself of the foreign gods and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you. You see, genuine repentance doesn't stop with tears and with mourning, as it says here. It moves, as Samuel's saying, into concrete actions. They're to put away their foreign gods. They're to get rid of those gods, those pragmatic gods. What gods have we been trusting in? To work things out for us this morning. Because it's not a harvest god or a rain god. It's raining today. But it might be a God of success, a God of money. It could be a God of education and schooling. It could be a God of relationships and sex. John Calvin wrote that our hearts are idol factories. They constantly create idols within us. And so let's not kid ourselves into thinking that we don't have them, because we do. Let's just confess them. And commit ourselves daily to the Lord and to serve him alone. That's what it says here. Genuine repentance is that preparation for God's mercy which flows. Verse 5, they turn to him in prayer as Samuel intercedes. And what does Samuel do? Verse 9. This is very important. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered. What happened? A sacrifice was made for sin. An atonement was made. You remember the ark, that box that contained the Ten Commandments? Above it was the mercy seat. It was called a mercy seat. It covered it. In Moses' day, the glory of God appeared above it, between the two cherubim. What happened on the mercy seat was that the high priest would intercede and would pour the blood of a sacrifice out onto it. An animal substitute was provided on the mercy seat because the blood had to shield the high priest and the people from the demands of the law. You couldn't just walk into God's presence. That's what we've discovered here, isn't it? You couldn't just walk in willy-nilly. You see, if you want to have a relationship with God, you have to be holy like him. You have to be made holy. You have to keep the law. But how can you keep the law? Because we're sinful. If you walked in there, you would be slain. And unless something, someone goes in there and intercedes, someone to cover the law... The New Testament tells us that that person is is Jesus Christ. He is the sacrifice 
made once for all. His blood was, was graciously poured out on the cross for us. It was poured out so that we could come into that place, so we could commune with God. He died in our place. God's mercy was revealed to the Israelites in part. They got a, a, a picture of what it was going to be like, what, it was re- what the real thing was. They didn't get what they deserved for abandoning, abandoning God. He, he was merciful. He provided a sacrifice, and he answered their cry for help. You see, it's the lamb, isn't it? It's the lamb. It always is the lamb. Jesus is our lamb. John the Baptist in John 1, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Know that Lamb. Because that's how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's through that Lamb. You can know God, you can know his mercy, you can know his grace, you can know his love, you can know his joy, you can enjoy him and celebrate him forever. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that glorious? God should do that for us, for me, for you. He is the one true God who sent his son. Come in, smash your idols, turn away from them. Come to the mercy seat where the lamb who was slain for us know what it cost him and trust him. Trust him. Let's pray. Our God, our Father, we come before you and pray that you'll forgive us for the times when we have presumed on you and taken you for granted. Father, we come before you and confess that our hearts are full of idols and we pray that you would smash them. And Father, we'd simply come to you and know that the truth of your words, that you are the only true and living God. And Father, we thank you that we can call you Father, we can enter your presence because of the blood of Jesus who covers the mercy seat. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your abundant grace that you not only forgive us, but you pour out your goodness to us. Blessing upon blessing because of the work of Jesus Christ. Help us to know him and trust him. Now and always, for we ask in his name. Amen.